Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, another edition of the VHFDX podcast, the year 2024, our first uh, episode for the new year. Bryce, I, it, it's probably not socially acceptable anymore to Happy New Year, you. Uh, we're recording this on January 23rd, so um, it goes without saying. I hope your 2024 has been happy so far. Um, how are you? How are uh, how are things on Cape Cod um, as we uh, get into the, uh, the the full mist of the winter time? Well, a uh, 23 day late happy new year to you as well, Nick. <laughs> things are uh things are kicking here. I think we were just discussing um with uh with you and our guest which is coming up, which I probably teased early about uh, about the off season. Mine has involved very little DXing and uh a lot of living, been super busy uh in in the best possible way. Uh, enjoying the winter weather. I actually love the winter and I love the off season and kind of uh, taking a break, resetting and uh, focusing on other things in life. But I'm happy to be uh, gathered here with you again. And I think this is our the beginning of our third year on this show, right? We started in 2021 and here we are in 2024. I don't know that I would have guessed we'd still be here, but happy to be still kicking with you and uh, all of our great listeners. Yeah, kind of wild. Uh, the uh, the twenty twenty one skip season. We, you know, you, you 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 break through the Azores. I think that was our you know first topic, and and we've you know, it, the rest is history. So, um, well, uh, you know, third anniversary, you know, milestone when it when it you know fully hits. But uh, but yeah, um, and uh, yeah, the winter time. You know, you, you just a, a different frame of mind, obviously from the DX perspective. Um, but likewise, we had our first uh, really substantial snowfall in two years here in uh, southern New Jersey. Um, it was nice just to uh, um, see all the, the the pine trees down where I'm at, um, covered in a, a a blanket of snow. A couple of long snow hikes with the dog um this past weekend so um you know nice to uh nice to have an actual winter or you know at least a a couple of weeks per se um and there are different ways you can enjoy it um so um you know um change it up a little bit is good um at the same time for for those of you across the the US specifically uh North America that that keep an ear to the bands during the winter time there actually was uh, uh, quite a bit of activity um the day before we record this um january 22nd um pretty substantial winter e-skip opening um it was funny and, and bryce and i just talking before um had been kind of thinking there hadn't been too much you know winter e-skip can't really count on anyway um on this side of the hemisphere um but usually there there's one or two in north america um and this particular one was was really good uh some reports including from uh randy zur um goldfield nevada um who had a, a really short 
FM skip log uh, to Hazleton and, and Twin Falls, Idaho, um, at just 377 miles, uh, you know, about as short as it can get um, on the FM band. So clearly indicating some high uh, MUF. Um, so um, and some some other interesting reports from places like California to Missouri, Oregon to South Dakota. Um, Josh in Mountain Home, Arkansas had an LPFM from Odessa, Texas. Um, and there was some e-skip even on the autologger uh, coming in um, early this morning, uh, January 23rd to uh, Steve in Milford, Illinois. So um, for those of you pretty much Illinois and West, it seemed like for this one um, that we're able to take advantage some cool off-season activity. Um, maybe there will be a little bit more. Um, we'll see. Um, but we did want to mention that at least. Yes, lots of red on the uh, W logger. Of course, the color for eSkip. One other name I think we were discussing before the call would be uh, Patrick Martin in Oregon. A uh, great uh, place to be DXing, given that there's very few DXers in uh, the Pacific Northwest. He had some really good luck on, I think that was the 23rd. Yeah, the evening of the 23rd. Lots of logs to South Dakota and Wyoming. Lots of good stuff. And then, of course, we had the meteor scatter season. I don't know if you really uh, partook in that much, Nick, other than your super amazing auto logger that sits on a couple of clear frequencies and uh, DX's meteor scatter for you. But uh, I did a little bit. The big meteor sh uh, shower in December, I actually found to be a little underwhelming, but uh, I did some recording and was really surprised with the results in, in what I believe is the quadrantids, the um, yes. meteor shower earlier in the month of January. Actually, at uh, the peak of that, I found that the rates were, you know, almost as good as I would expect for the Perseids or the Geminids. So um, that was cool, but otherwise been mostly off the bands. I don't know. What about you and meteor scatter? Yeah, that, uh, you know, just simply through what you see there on on the auto logger. And again, uh, I continue to enjoy um, and I think it helps us spot the off season activity. Um, you know, th there were a lot of reporters on W logger for that skip opening we mentioned yesterday um, here in January. And I don't know that would, that would always happen during the winter season, but the auto loggers um, are a great first alert to showing that there is skip with maximum usable frequency into FM. Uh, similarly for me with meteor scatter. Um, and I found the same. I thought the, the January shower, um, the on again, off again, translator that unfortunately is on again on a uh, 92.9 near me uh, was off actually for both the Geminids and the, uh, the January shower. Um, and so um, a lot of the, you know, you you get five or ten similar signals with juiced RDS or good RDS or just good signal strengths. So there are a lot of repeats, uh, but I, it was entertaining uh, during both of those meteor showers, um, just sitting on a few channels with my lower meteor scatter antenna um connected. So that uh, you know, that that gave me some some good entertainment both. December 13th, 14th, and then January 3rd and 4th. Um, 
And it seemed like there were a few folks, um, the gentleman um, in Alberta specifically, um, whose autologger does very well uh, in meteor scatter events as well that I noticed. Uh, a couple of others on rabbit ears um, that are consistent, the marble North Carolina autologger as well. So um, I wouldn't say otherworldly results reported by anyone, um, but both those meteor events um, are always fun to look forward to in December and January. Um, and good to hear you had some results uh, on your IQ recordings as well, Bryce. Yes, absolutely. And I do plan on doing a little YouTube review of some of those. I think I had my YouTube series going uh, late in the summer talking about SDR console and some of those features. So I'm going to use some of those IQ recordings to demonstrate the um, SDR console data analyzer. So if anyone has followed my YouTube channel, stay tuned for that. And I'll share a little bit about how my uh, meteor scatter results were this winter as we go into a long drought of really any kind of propagation, which usually starts uh, after the quadrantids and going into April, usually kind of the dead period Pretty for us dour. in North America to enjoy other things. Yeah, that's I, I we had this conversation on a previous episode. I think uh, March is like the 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 most barren DX month. Again, that that might be a hot take. Um, skip can happen in February. We noted uh, on our our prep sheet uh, that the late Pat Dyer WA five IYX had channel thirteen skip on February seventh, nineteen seventy seven to uh, Sioux Falls. Um, so. This recent flurry just uh, you know jogged my mind that you know strong skip can happen in the winter, but I think you know from this point forward or maybe you know maybe Valentine's Day forward, let's say, um, not too much happening. So you know you 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 look to you know maybe other resources. Um, and for us on this particular episode. Um, it, it, it's a good time to uh, seek out interesting individuals um, in the hobby, contributing with, with, with their interests, their research. Um, and the one name, Bryce, that, that we had in mind, um, he's reached out. We featured some of his Tropo DX um, on the last major episode of the, uh, of, of the podcast, um, Chris Cadlick. Um, who um, has spent 25 years um, observing propagation in the Great Lakes, which I know is is of interest to uh, you know several of our listeners um, who DX in Southwest Ontario and and in Michigan in uh, Chris's home state, um, and then he has also DXed overseas, specifically in Korea. Um, and he has a, a a wealth of experience. He has a, a phenomenal website that the both of us were, were uh, just uh, totally mesmerized by before the call. So let's welcome our guest to the VHFDX podcast today, Chris Cadlick joining us. Chris, how are you? How is your Michigan winter going so far? Uh, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Um Michigan winter has actually um, been quite tame. Uh, we had no fall at all. It just rained and rained and rained. Um, a lot of times we'll have, um, you know, the DX will at least go through the end of October. And that just didn't happen. It just, it just stopped at the start of October. And then on Halloween, um, our area got about a foot of snow. Mm. Um, and then after that, it just kind of, 
fizzled out and it, it was a very nice mild December and you know now now winter has arrived it's definitely the dead season uh dx wise um in the midwest and probably across most of the country and you know it opens me up to doing things you know such as being on this podcast um where you know I don't have to worry you know with how are the conditions where can I go um, for mobile DXing? Um, it's just very much um, just a lot more relaxing, a lot more stress-free to kind of get away from the hobby and work on projects for a while. Very good. And I think some of those projects are radio related. We'll have to touch on some of those a little later in the episode. So um, Chris, I don't know if you want to kind of kick your part of the podcast off here with a little bit of your backstory. I think Nick kind of did a very high level outline, but maybe tell us a little bit about what got you interested in DXing and then, um, you know, where you've DXed from, and then we'll kind of go from there and dive into uh, some of your experiences. Uh, well, first of all, I'm I have a very much a niche interest in DXing, uh, which is a niche hobby. So I guess let's talk about that on a niche podcast. Uh, it's the perfect <laughs> place for it um, with fellow DXers. Um, I, I started DXing when I was quite young. Uh, in 1989, I was living in southern New Hampshire. I was, um, I was given my very first radio, an Emerson dual cassette radio. Um, and I, I mean... I was still a kid at the time, so I knew nothing about DXing. And I remember just just kind of tuning across the band, hearing, you know, this station and that station. Maybe they'll I, I think one mentioned Pittsburgh one time. It's like, wow, I have Pittsburgh. Uh it it was actually 35 miles away. I I found that out about 30 years later when I researched it. Um, <laughs> and that radio still has an old uh, 975 WOKQ sticker on it, ah. even to this day. Um, later on, I started TV in the early to mid nineties, I'd make station lists, you know, what I, what I heard, I was kind of enamored by like TV guide and publications like that, that would show all of my local stations, but were clearly emitting everything that I was seeing, uh, on the TV. So I, I'd like to think like, I'd like to write a letter to them. Like, can you include these channels, um, which any you know, kind of nerdy DXer might do. Um, I was still, you know, early teens at that point. Um, later on, I, I got into like AM radio in the mid nineties. Uh, I, I still have it today. I made a full like band scan, uh, 1996, where I just went through the whole AM band and just kind of did an average band scan, which is quite related to what I do these days, actually. Um, and, and that didn't, that didn't last too many years after a while. It's like, yeah, AM it's great. Let's move on to something different. Um, so I'd say like a year or two later, I was watching TV, just normal, normal programs in the evening. And, and this is how I thought it was at the time as a teenager, I got uh, South Florida, which, you know, many of us in the East half of the U S get quite often you know oh, channel yeah. two was very common um i had never seen that though so in my eyes i said i marked it down as ufo reception um as in a ufo was above <laughs> my house beaming 
uh, distant signals. I, I knew nothing of eSkip at the time. Um, you know, it, in those days, we didn't have Google, you know, to just, you know, turn on the computer. It's like, what am I hearing? What mm. is this? You had to go to the, the local public library and you had to to find some kind of, you know, some kind of book. A lot of times they're more shortwave and AM related. Um, so not exactly as helpful. Or you need to, at that time, you know, the internet was a thing, but you'd have to find the right website and the right person. And um, so while I was convinced, like, there's no other possible explanation, it must be a UFO. Um, I ended up on W9WI.com. Uh, that is a now defunct website of Doug Smith. Mm. Um, back then, it was, I'd say, one of the top um, top websites you could go to to find lists of TV stations. And he was nice enough at that time, and he may or may not remember this. This was, um, I believe, is actually later on. It was, I think, 99 or probably 2000. Uh, he explained all of the propagation basics to me. What is eSkip? What is Tropo? Um, I know some people like to say Tropo, but I, I, I Tropo. in the same podcast, I'll change. Yes. Tropo, Tropo, um, yeah. And he was nice enough to, you know, explain these things to me. And I think without him and other people who have helped me understand DX related and weather related stuff over the years, I may have taken a slightly different path in my DX, well, let's call it a career uh, for lack of uh uh, a better term um and it wasn't until 2002 that um i started lake tropo and at that time everybody just called it lake inversion and over the years like well it's you know there's a lot more to it because that same type of um that same the same type of conditions can also be found along the atlantic coast and other places which is not a lake and so I started calling it just in general for the Great Lakes, Lake Tropo, which seemed to have caught on well, um, or just like a, a marine inversion sort of marine tropo, uh, just an all encompassing sort of term for it. Uh, I, I found three stations that I constantly would get in the daytime um, out of Wisconsin, and they would disappear at night and be replaced by, you know, enhancement stations um just from from inland it's like what is this and why are they doing this and that kind of fueled that interest um just out of curiosity and and here i am uh, about 22 years later i i've definitely figured out what fuels it um and it wasn't until about seven years later i moved to korea in 2009 I just missed the the analog switch off date by I think a month it was, um, and by then I had I had been very much into TV eSkip. Um, that was definitely my thing. Uh, FM as well. I have extensive logs, um, all of them mobile, car radio, um, things like that. Um, aside from TV, of course. Um, before analog switched off, I had. Um, I had Channel 2 Los Angeles uh, by Double Hop, uh, wow. 1832 miles. Brief, but it was there. Wow. Uh, and as short as 411 miles uh, just to St. Louis on mm. uh, Channel 2. Um, 
I, I miss those days, but we must move on. Yeah. Um, DTV is not as favorable where I live. Um, later on, um, I started Chinese Tropo in 2011, which I was receiving across the Yellow Sea from Korea. Uh, some Chinese and Russian um, e-skip would come later on. Um, did some um, did some long haul trucking in 2017. Did some um, like inland band scans and stuff like that. And, and, and mind you, all of this is um, is mobile. I I'm strictly a mobile DXer, both FM and AM, mostly on the FM side. I have no home setup. I don't keep a running DX log for my home location. Um, I go out in the field, um, sometimes literally the field, um, but, you know, out where I can sort of study marine influence tropo. No, no external antennas, no computer, no SDR, mm. as much as I'm curious about that. Um, and, and the reason is in just a flat out inhospitable environment. I mean, I'm out in the hot sun on like sand dunes a lot of times. Uh, Lake Michigan beach sand is extremely fine. It damages everything. If you have a computer or radio equipment on the beach or nearby, you will you will have sand in all of the cracks. Um, it, it is just, you and you cannot haul uh, an external antenna easily up a sand dune and you know here or there um and so i've just gone with portables mainly um i for the last nine years i've used a, a grundig g8 uh very nice portable radio that's gotten me some great catches i just switched to a tef 6686 ah week. that's I, I was just, wow, that recent, you know, we, we've just talked a week about it ago. on the show. Um, I feel like for your purposes, like that, you know, I don't want to say life-changing, but but how have you found the TEF so far? I I think it's different. For one thing, it is metal. Um, the, the Grundig that I have is, at least the external part of it, is made out of plastic. And um, I don't know what other people's experiences are with these portable radios. But uh, with me, I, I seem to have a lot of electrical current that goes through my body where um, to get a, a decent signal on the Grundig, I have to actually press like my right thumb onto the radio. Um, and I have to stand a certain way, which I, I guess kind of helps that signal kind hmm. of go through my body. I guess it grounds it. I'm, I don't have great expertise in this field, but I've been told that's the reason. Um, and so everybody says, well, well, awesome catches. Why don't you do a video recording of it? It's like, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, if I take my it's hand throw off everything this radio, off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've had so many people um, when I'm, I'm at the beach or wherever I might be DXing, they, you know, they'll stare me down from a distance. Like, what is he doing? I'm holding a device with an antenna. I'm standing like a flamingo because if I, if I put, you know, this foot or that foot down, the signal will disappear. And it might be like, if I move the, the antenna one millimeter. That sensitive. Yes. Yeah. 
this way or that way, it's gone. And I'm trying to record a top of our ID or something. And it's like, please, please don't come over here and ask me what's going on. Please. I, I feel that uh, last August, um, not too long after I got my TEF, I was uh, just, you know, at 11 p.m. at night walking up and down the uh, the Wildwood, New Jersey boardwalk. Um, and I did have a couple onlookers like, what are you doing? What is this thing you're holding? Um, I'm a, you know, a goofball to begin with. So, um, you know, just, just don't disrupt me. Just ignore, you know, yeah, let, let me be. That's, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the approach I, I would like to take, but I, I get it. Like that's, it's a very sensitive situation, um, when you're trying to position the radio and, and, and the antenna in, in a, a certain manner. But at the same time, um, obviously, I've had a lot of failures where I could not avoid people. Um, I've, I have 80 different mobile sites that um, go across all of the Great Lakes. So some of them are, are very good, especially my main site, um, kind of outside of Hart, Michigan, it's uh, Hart Rest Area. Um, it's, it's positioned very well where there's a nature trail, uh, pretty short one, but I just take that nature trail about like a 10 second walk. And then I go about 20 feet up the hill and people will take that nature trail and they won't even see me. Not at all. And I'm just looking at them pass by like, thank God for, you know, uh, standing on a hillside and listening to the radio. Whereas other sites, um, one up by uh, Copper Harbor, which is the almost the furthest you can go up in the in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It overlooks Lake Superior about 700 feet over the lake on a, a mountain. And um, I was just out in the open. And there's so many people streaming, you know, in and out of there and looking at me and stopping me and asking me, what is this? What are you doing? Just, you know, in a, in a kind way, you know, like I, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm curious. I have met ham radio enthusiasts. I've met fellow DXers who, you know, might be doing shortwave or mm. another band where they're unfamiliar with um, the specific DXing that I'm doing. And that is, I've had great conversations with these people and they've walked away finding, you know, you know, they, they understand something that they previously hadn't. And so I feel, yes, it's a bit of a pain, but, you know, I've kind of contributed to somebody's knowledge where they might, they might maybe take an interest in that hobby or find somebody else who does, and they'll know what that's called. And they'll know that there's resources out there for people like us. That's awesome. And, and I feel like that, you know, that 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 is the beauty of of mobile DX. Um, you know, you're out there and yeah, it you know, could potentially be disruptive, um, but you're out there, you know, looking to get the signals and 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 so maybe other people who observe um that sparks an interest because it, it it does it's just like a natural curiosity um trying to hear the signal um and i and i think it's so cool um you know specific to the great lakes um that it it's just you know it, you mentioned you know coastal dx's coastal dx or marine dx but there is something fascinating um the lakes being inland um 
I Bryce and I have talked about it on the show, like when those tropo openings actually extend across um, the Appalachians. And um, so I feel like just focusing on tropo in the Great Lakes has had to, um, you know, produce a lot of findings for you. Can you talk about um, some of the, you know, maybe, you know, and and dive in, but to some of the um, findings o over the past couple of decades, some patterns that you've seen from Michigan, but, but all the sites, um, and if maybe there's some differences between what you've observed at, at Lake Michigan and Lake Huron and, um, and, and going on and on there. Uh, well, I've, I've actually lived a few uh, different spots before. Um, I grew up in New England. Um, of course, I was not a DXer at that time. Um, but, you know, I'd go back and I'd visit family. So I've, I've gotten, I've gotten a little bit of experience on the Atlantic coast. Uh, I've been able to kind of compare uh, what's, you know, how everything works there. Um, I've lived in Buffalo. So that's right along Lake Erie. Um, and within shot of, um, you know, earshot of Lake Ontario, um, Miami as well. Um, sadly, I was not into FM at that time. That would come a year later when I started all this project. Um, but I mean, first of all, I am not a meteorologist. So there, there's a lot of stuff weather related that I can talk about, but I do not have the, the training that somebody like, you know, Bill Hepburn might have where he kind of specializes in in tropo um to you know to some degree you know if if you've invented the the tropo forecast we all use you could probably say you know he specializes in that um so if there are meteorologists out there that are listening i'm sure there are and i give some sort of misinformation reach out to me correct me um it will it will help me in the future um but that being said um if you are if you're listening to DX or, or just any radio in the Great Lakes, the first thing to realize is that um, that is mesoscale weather patterns. Mesoscale is, you know, something confined to a smaller area where what we usually look at for tropo is synoptic scale. You know, the weather that is brought in by the westerlies, for example, where, you know, you see it move across the whole country and that might uh, spur some sort of tropo opening. And when you are, when you're dealing with mesoscale uh, sort of things, you know, that are maybe just limited to just one lake, you know, just Lake Michigan might have this weather pattern. Models like meteoro meteor meteorological models uh, can be very hard to come by as, you know, uh, just, a normal person, you know, if you're, if you work for a TV station or, you know, something like national weather service, yes, you'll have those models at hand. Um, so there's a lot of things that I've noticed in the great lakes when I'm DXing where I really wish I had some kind of models, um, which I don't have access to. And a lot of them are real time. And, um, where I go, there's rarely any phone signal. Um, there, there's just no way to access a lot of this stuff. And then by the time you get home, um, it's dark and those conditions have long since faded. So there's a lot of things I, I end up noticing 
Um, and I don't always have the data to back it up. I have the observation of, you know, 20 something years. Um, one, one thing that I have, I've kind of, I, I wouldn't say studied, but I, I would say somewhat studied in an informal sense. Um, shoreline orientation is a really big one um, where the, the shape of the shoreline really depends. Um, it, it, it depends, um, the radio signals that you receive uh, depend on the shoreline orientation is what I, I wanna say. Uh, it sure. serves sort of as a directional antenna. So for example, I, like, I live along Lake Michigan, I'm 22 miles inland, um, but you can easily drive to the beach. Um, and if your shoreline is facing, you know, if you're right at the beach and you're facing right directly out at the water and you take a compass and it, sh and it says you are facing to the Northwest, um, that is kind of like a directional antenna. The majority of your strongest signals will come from the Northwest, where if you switch it around and you go further down the shore, where you look at, out at the water and you are facing southwest, you know, in, in my case, that would be toward like Chicago or so, then the strongest signals will come from that direction. And that is, that is very interesting to me. Uh, I, I've always wondered, why is that? And I noticed that from very early on. Uh, and I found out that the lake breeze is what fuels most of this DX. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing I can expand on that a little bit more later, but I've, I've studied uh, how much water is necessary before signals become enhanced. Um, like you're mentioning inland lakes, um, that I haven't messed around with so much because you need a pretty sizable lake. Um, and, and even then it's, there's no beach. So I'm, I'm less, I'm less, um, interested in hanging out there, um, but I have noticed that um, I've done uh, Straits of Mackinac. Um, anybody that knows Michigan might know Mackinac Island is very, a very popular tourist attraction. Um, Mackinac Bridge spans the Straits. And if you're on the south side of the Straits with four miles of water, um, everything to the north is enhanced across that, that four mile stretch of water. I mean, we're, we're talking very enhanced, you know, mm -hmm. you're getting 200 miles uh, to the north or northwest. And then you cross the bridge and you're on the, the north side in St. Ignace, uh, looking like aiming to the south, you're getting a good 200 plus miles in that direction. But the signals that you got on the opposite side are absent or very weak. And so I've, I've messed around with that a lot. Um, I live not too far from Muskegon, Michigan. Um, and if you look at a map, Fort Wayne is very, it's quite significantly inland. And you'd think, how would you get that across, you know, a body of water? How can that be Lake Tropo? Now, if you map it out, um, there's a, a 10 mile path of water uh, leading toward Fort Wayne, well inland, that's just, it runs a quarter mile offshore. That much water, just that much water, a quarter of a mile off of the beach is enough to fuel in the whole market. You can get all of Fort Wayne at this specific location on the coast. 
Um, and, and these are things that they're, they're very niche, like I, I said, but um, when you've done it for 10 or 20 years or so, it's like, and you notice these little things like, why? Why is this? And then you might take three or four or five years trying to figure that out uh, with other observations over time. Um, what, what I usually do is I, I look at the signal paths. I do a full band scan. It takes about four to five hours. You know, I get every station that you can hear behind all the stations, behind the IBOC. Uh, and then I look at that path on a map and I, I try to figure out why. Why is this path common at this specific location, but not this? And, um, and those are kind of the things that I've, I've done. Um, how does a lake breeze affect signal propag uh, propagation? Um, that took many years and reading of a few books on lake breezes. How do they work? Um, and, and just how much elevation is necessary? Um, is, you know, can, can you DX right on the beach, for example, or do you need a 100 foot sand dune or hill right there? Um, and, you know, blocking land, you know, how, how does this, um, this high hill affect a signal? Um, and, and one that I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will ask the, the effect of being in the middle of the lake. Uh, we we do have two car ferries that run across Lake Michigan. Um, can can you DX on the car ferry? And how are conditions as compared to on the shore? Um, and short answer is don't do it. Don't bother with DXing in the middle of the lake. It's the same as tropo scatter. Um, the the signals think of it just as you are. Um, you are in a major tropo opening, like the ones that we had this fall. Those who are on the edge of the tropo blob, if that's what you, you could call it, they often get the strongest signals, the ones on the fringe, as opposed to the ones right in the middle of it. And it doesn't, doesn't always apply, obviously. And it's the same thing. If you're on either coast, either shoreline, you, you will get the strongest signals, but in the middle, not so much. Hmm. So um, that, that that's extremely interesting. The one one question I had, um, if I guess uh, listening to you describe this, it almost sounds to me the way I'm formulating it in my head that that the the lake or the water acts as kind of a director. If you think of a, a directional Yagi antenna that has, you know, a certain amount of director elements pointing uh, in one direction. And then you would have the reflector on the backside of the antenna that would essentially, you know, uh, reject signals off the back. Have you found that the dunes can act as a bit of a, uh, a reflector, if you will, if you're standing on one side of the dune with the dune behind you, is that an effective attenuator of signals coming from the other direction and have used that for, to your advantage to say like null signals coming from inland and, and and has that been affected effective have you studied that uh topic of, of the dunes and their uh signal rejection that is basically um that is everything that i do uh that that is the most important way that you're going to hear anything from across any body of water uh, the Atlantic might be a little bit different because 
uh, there's in many spots no opposite shore, depending on you know where you live specifically. Um, Bryce, you, I mean, being in Massachusetts, it, it's significantly easier. You've got the opposite shore up in the Maritimes, uh, so that that's very different. Although not not so much as far as blocking elevation. Um, in in my case, I've got a lot of sand dunes. Some of them are a hundred feet. Um, if you go further north to Sleeping Bear Dune, you've got many hundreds of feet of sand. And if you are, if you're DXing, let's say eighty percent up the the side of that hill, whether it's a sand dune or what, uh, that that gives enough elevation to get in on the best signals, but it also blocks out very effectively what's behind you, which is inland, because everything everything over the water, um, and you can, you can think of it as um, the, the Great Lakes or any body of water usually has colder water than the air above it. So um, Lake Michigan, for example, um, by the middle of summer, you're, you're talking 75 degree water or so. Um, a little earlier than that, maybe in the 60s toward June or so. And that creates a high pressure dome, uh, kind of a bubble. Um, so you've got high pressure down below, and then the, the warmer air is pushing down on that. And that high pressure is kind of like a, a domed stadium. Uh, and, and this is something that Bill Hepburn taught me um, maybe a decade ago. Think of it like a, a bubble, a bubble of high pressure. And with warmer air pushing down and then you've got the lake breeze within that and that's kind of holding everything together it's fueling all of the um, the airflow and so if you are along the water and you've got a hill behind you that you are within that bubble that high pressure bubble right along the shore and then it breaks as it goes inland. So you're essentially within the duct and you're blocking any, any um, signals from behind you inland by being on the opposite side of that hill. So you can use those hills to remain within the duct. And these are often very strong ducts. You know, they, they might barely have any holes to let these signals out. And um, at, at my, my main mobile site, I've got Muskegon about 25 or 30 miles down the road. They're just absent. A lot of the signals, even the, you know, the 50 kilowatt type signals, they're just not there. You just don't hear them. You're within, uh, within a duct that is marine in nature. So that, that is something I, I've definitely, I, I haven't only looked into it and studied it, but I use it on um, an everyday basis as, as kind of the golden rule of DXing over water is use, use the elevation to your advantage. And I mean, the, the crap that you can hear by doing that, uh, it can go hundreds of miles. I've gotten um, over 600 miles uh, across Lake Michigan and into the Dakotas just by being on a hillside. Mm. very I'm, interesting so oh go so ahead good. nick 
no, no, I, I was just going to say too, uh, stemming from that, are there instances where um, maybe, you know, almost sort of counterintuitively, um, you know, you're maybe not necessarily aiming toward without a Yagi, um, but you're, you know, looking in the direction of signals across the shoreline. Do you see propagation maybe from other directions, you know, more inland, despite the dunes being in the way? Um, has that been a phenomenon that 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 you've observed? I have absolutely dealt with that a number of times. Um, I, I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but quite often where um, and I'm on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. Uh, but there's a lot of stations, uh, more powerful stations, like, uh, for example, WLEW in, in Bad Axe, Michigan. That that gets out uh, very, very well. Uh, WIOG. Uh, bigger stations like that, where I will point my antenna, and I'm completely with, within that marine duct, with a hill blocking everything inland. Not Maybe not everything, but the majority. I am not going to get a station 200 miles behind me um, when when I can barely get a station, you know, that is 30 or 40 miles behind me. I have aimed my my radio antenna to the west away from these signals, and they are coming in off of Lake Michigan, meaning and there's there's a few explanations for this. Um, so that that dome of high pressure that is over the water, uh, it can get holes for one thing. You know, you might have a fog bank that goes by. It might break some things up. You might get a signal from uh, from afar that dumps into there, and then they get caught within this this dome of high pressure, and they have nowhere to go. So you might have a signal that is from you know Wisconsin. And it will go across the lake and it will run into sand dunes, you know, right where I'm standing. And where is it going to go? A, a lot of, you know, the normal signals will bounce off the earth and they'll go back into space. But it can't do that because it's within this duct. And what I've noticed is it simply turns around and it goes right back to the opposite shore. Um, you know, it's refracting off of, of the elevation and remaining within that that high pressure that's over the water so um for for one thing we've got um lake huron and lake michigan are connected um up at the straits of mackinac and that's you know that is uh, about let's say 150 miles or so to my north but if you've got a really strong day uh, you know strong conditions one day you can have that high pressure and those signals can, I would say, refract around and stay within that whole water system. You've got Lake Huron and Lake Michigan being connected. They can just go through the straits or they can, you know, bounce over, you know, Michigan in general, you know, the whole lower peninsula. There, there's so many things at play, you know, weather changes, you know, moment to moment. Um, but I, I've noticed that with other stations, they'll go from like one one lake system um, into another. They'll kind of hop lakes and they'll get stuck in there. Uh, and 
I I've noticed that kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes you just don't have an explanation. What I I've always been sure of is I aim out to the west and I hear stations from behind, you know, behind me where they shouldn't be coming from. And when I aim in the direction of, you know, where their you know where their tower is, they're gone. And I, I've seen that many, many, many times over the years. And we we can't trace the path a radio signal takes. You can just speculate. You can go on the data, you know, whether it's just observation, whether it's uh, weather data, um, things like that, which I often don't have access to. So do you find that, you know, if you're in one of these counterintuitive directionality patterns, is it consistent um, across, say, multiple stations, or is it usually just like a one-off signal that that you're hearing from the the wrong direction, if you will? Or is it like the entire, you know, radio dial of, say, somewhere 100 miles in the wrong direction, you're hearing all the stations? Or maybe like some of us observe in traditional tropa openings, you'll hear signals that are coming from a taller tower and then uh, a shorter stick you 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 don't catch all those signals have you made any observations like that just uh the the selectivity of of uh, wrong direction tropo if you will um what what i have noticed and this applies uh, i don't know about the atlantic coast because i just haven't been able to talk to enough people but yeah. when when i get Lake Tropo, or uh, when I was living in Korea and I get Tropo, Chinese Tropo over the Yellow Sea, you usually get the same stations every time. Uh, you, you know, you, you land on a frequency and you hear it, it's like, yeah, it's this station. You you barely even have to listen to it. You know what it is. Mm. And that is um, each location. And like I said, I've got 80 different locations, 80 different mobile sites along the Great Lakes usually have the same stations almost every time. So, you know, if you go to the opposite shore of Lake Michigan in Milwaukee, and you, you can get some good stuff there. Um, if you go to uh, Oak Creek, there's a, a wonderful park there that's got a giant hill behind you that kind of blocks out or weakens all of the locals. Um, and you can easily hear Saginaw, Flint, um, you know, Houghton Lake, Detroit, Windsor, Toledo from there at wow. 200 plus miles. And, um, but you'll hear the same stations usually. It's the, they, they're not necessarily always the strongest stations. They might not have towers, you know, they might not broadcast from the same tower. And it's something I cannot perfectly explain, but you get the same set of stations. And that that's one thing I, I've noticed. You, it's usually the same stations that you'd hear on the opposite side of the lake. So if I'm in Milwaukee, I would expect to hear WIOG on 1025. That is, that's quite common. Now, if I go to my side of the lake and I'm right across from Milwaukee, I'm hearing WIOG quite often, just along the shore, just right along the water. And and so, yeah, I, I think that it kind of whatever fashion, you know, whatever method it takes to end up in Lake Michigan, whether it's, you know, ending up there, you know, it's re refracting off whatever it's getting caught in the lake and it goes back to the opposite shore. It is usually the same stations and that that applies for um, 
for, for almost any site along, along the Great Lakes. And the same stations, I'm sure there's also stations like WIOG, for example, looks to be in uh, Bay City, Michigan. So yes. if you if you thought about what the band was like in Bay City, you wouldn't be hearing the whole dial. You just hear these select stations that always seem to make it through in these openings, right? That's right. You, you would okay. not expect to hear um, any of the, the lower powered stations. And then at the same time, you might not hear all the higher powered ones, um, but they... Sometimes you might hear one that's got three kilowatts of power and you'll hear it like all across the entire lake at every site you go, you'll be able to hear this. And these stations, they get caught up in a lake. And then, um, and this is something I discussed with Bill Hepburn in the past and, and other meteorologists have the same interest in, in if this happens and how this happens, uh, a station, however it manages to end up in the lake, whether it's, um, you know, generally if, uh, for example, if you're on Lake Huron, Detroit stations can be heard along the beach in, uh, let's say, Port Huron, which is, you know, it's on the southern tip of Lake Huron. If a station makes it to the beach, it will get caught up in that lake. It'll be trapped in that duct. And it seems like it will fan out everywhere across the entire lake. It will go um, in Lake Huron. You've got Georgian Bay. Um, it will go over the Bruce Peninsula. It will get caught up in Georgian Bay. It will refract back to you. Um, I had that happen um, in Collingwood. That's north of Toronto, um, kind of on, on the very south end of Georgian Bay where stations from Detroit will come in and there is a uh, blue mountain ski resort. It's a very high hill that is blocking that direction. Stations from a distance just will not climb over that hill. They will not hop over it. I, I aim North and I'm hearing Detroit. I'm, I'm aiming away from Detroit. I mean, not off the back of the antenna or anything. Um, which looking at the map for listeners uh, from Collingwood to Detroit would be Southwest in a direct path. So you're pointing North and hearing, uh, hearing it trapped in this, um, this widespread duct over the water. Incredible. Yes. Um, I, I would say, you know, it, it just, however, it ends up in the lake, assuming that conditions are favorable, you know, you, you need something that spans the majority of the lake. Uh, in order to hold those signals in, it will it will fan out over the whole shore. Um, some of the bigger signals, uh, WAKS um, out of Akron, uh, that's uh, 96.5. Um, and you've got 103.7 uh, WRTS, Erie. Those can be See, heard. Reported a lot, yeah. Yeah, th those are pretty big signals in, in this region, um, even inland. They they're both on Lake Erie, but they can be heard up to like the Lake Huron shoreline. They will get stuck in Lake Huron. You can hear those signals all the way to the top of Lake Huron. Uh, my Blind River, Ontario site, this is in excess of 300 miles easily. Every time I have gone there, and I believe it's three times, I can hear both of them, uh, you know, as long as nothing else is uh, stronger is interfering. And um, 
and that's probably a, a better example because you've got two different lakes. So it's it's not only getting caught within, you know, Lake Lake Erie, and both of them end up in um, Lake Ontario as well. And you can uh, hear them uh, like 1037 before um, uh, a local had come on, you know, along that journey. You can listen to that for the majority of your drive up the 401 all the way to Kingston. Um, and I, it, it's a shame that a lot of stations have come on the air in the last, uh, I'd say, 25 years or so. So it has blocked out a lot of stations that I would really, really like to hear, you know, to try to figure out things like this. You know, how far does a station go? In the meantime, um, you know, a new local will sign on mm -hmm. and I'll never hear the distant one again. Although, you know, you can still hear it behind locals. You know, if you're standing in the right spot, it's still there. Um, and and that that happens across all the lakes. Uh, th things just get caught in there and you aim in in an opposite direction where it's impossible. I mean, nothing's impossible, but largely impossible to hear these signals at a certain location. And there they are, as long as you're aiming at the water. Very I interesting. Think. So how would um, how would you say that land affects this so if you if you're observing these uh incredible conditions and then you were to say find a good mobile site that's a mile or two inland what kind of conditions would you observe there would it be kind of a muted version of what you're hearing in the shoreline and some of these behaviors are consistent or is it as soon as you get even a little away from the shoreline these these conditions just completely fall apart what's been your experience uh, that that's actually a really great question um and it kind of goes into the basics of how um, how Lake Tropo works. So being 22 miles inland um, in, in the summer, and, and it starts, you know, toward, I'd say, June or so. Uh, and it, it goes through about October. We'll, we'll have the lake breeze that will kick in. And, you know, if you're on the Atlantic, Pacific, Gulf of Mexico or whatever, you'll have your, your sea breeze that's um, probably a lot heftier because it's a bigger body of water. But the the lake breeze will push inland and um, in the sort of mesoscale nature of it, it's it, it's its own system. It will push inland with what's called a lake breeze front. And you can see the clouds. Um, and, and if you look uh, if you look online, um, the the best place to do it, um, is UW Madison, they have um, MODIS imagery. MODIS is like moderate resolution imaging spectro radiometer, um, kind of a mouthful. Um, radiometer, um, that's probably yeah. how, actually how you say it. Um, sounds but, sounds but, like it to me, yeah. Uh, that, that is the most helpful. You can look at um, usually, I think two times a day, it'll take a satellite picture. And if you look at the Great Lakes, you can see um, over over the lakes, the the sky is clear. And then inland, you get a lot of clouds, you know, maybe just cumulus clouds or whatever, uh, just scattered around throughout the area. And you will see sort of a shadow, a clear, um, clear skies that have pushed about 20 or 30 miles inland. And that is... Um, 
anything within that you can expect marine induced conditions so um the lake breeze usually starts up is daytime only it'll start up around 11 o'clock in the morning it'll last until about seven or eight at night uh keeping in mind sunset here's uh at the peak of summer is like 9 30 to 10. um so later in later in the season you know those times are altered a little sure um and that lake breeze front will push inland in um if you're maybe like april may or so it'll push just a little bit you know a few miles or so um so if you're right on the beach you'll get a low level inversion um it might be I mean, I can't measure them obviously easily, but um, it might be a matter of a few hundred feet. It might be a thousand feet. You'll get translators, like dinky little translators from across the water that will keep close to the shore. You won't get inland stuff so much. Uh, and you can go, you know, maybe a mile inland at that time of year um, and expect to hear something decent. Now, as the water warms up, once it hits 65 degrees, and I've year after year paid very close attention, when, when does the Lake Tropo start? Usually when the water hits 65 degrees. That might be um, sometime in June. And then that marine layer will push further inland. You're talking 5 to 10 miles. Um, it, it, and it depends on the lake. You know, Lake Michigan is a great example because we have, you know, differing elevation. Others are more flat. Um, Erie, Ontario, Huron tend to be pretty flat overall. Um, and it will kind of get locked in by elevation. Uh, at, at my site, it's six miles inland. And it's about, I think, three or 400 feet above the lake. And if you go another mile inland, the conditions will drop off. You go down a hill and it's done. If you're like, if I'm driving home, everything shuts off like a switch and then you're mm -hmm. just hearing just typical inland crap that you don't want to hear uh nothing exciting but within those 10 miles or so you're driving up the shore you are hearing signals 100 200 miles easily with rds with hd um just phenomenal on a on a good day of course um and that that can push you know a, a good I've measured it to about 30 to 45 miles inland where you can hear the bigger stations uh, and it is elevation dependent, it, you know, frequency dependent, you know, if you've got uh, bigger stations inland um, and elevation dependent usually starts about 750 feet and up where things just kind of switch on. And um, I, I would say um, as well, we, it depends on the inversion height. Uh, you might have you might have an elevated duct, and that is one thing. in In the past, Bill Hepburn had mentioned, and he was so kind. I think it was two thousand eight. I mentioned um, I'm not seeing any of my my lake tropo on your forecast maps. Not very helpful, obviously. And he tweaked those maps to include that to better include it. Thank you so much to him. That has changed. It has changed, I'd say, my entire hobby, you know, my entire interest where I can now forecast it. And I believe on 
on this very podcast, he had mentioned that he he had stopped tweaking it probably around that time, um, afraid he was going to break it. So, um, but, you know, looking at that, he, he had mentioned something about um, whether it was to me personally um, or somebody else, elevated ducks are a very big problem with forecasting. Uh, and you, you just don't know when you're going to uh, run into an elevated duct. You look at the forecast, like, wow, it looks phenomenal. And you go to the beach and you hear nothing. Nothing is dead. Yet you go 100, um, 100 feet higher and the whole band is just hopping with signals. Or you might hear it 20, 20 miles inland and nothing at the lakeshore. And, and so like to, to, to answer that question, you, you know, like, where do you have to be? Um, you know, how far inland? It, it depends on so many different things. Um, inversions can get you only the stations right along the shore, especially in the fall and in the spring. Or you can get um, stations that are only elevated. Um, from here, I'd say 200 miles um, 200 miles away. But the ones closer to the lake, you won't get. So you might get Wausau um, or Madison, which is much further inland. Or you might get both of them. And it's it, and I, that's why I keep a full band scan for every site. Like, what is common here? Why did I get this? And you can try to look at the weather models. You know, what did the weather balloon show? you know, at this site or this site, uh, was it an elevated duct? And a lot of it's just a guessing game. You just, you just don't know. Very interesting. So I think, uh, maybe, maybe before we move along to some other topics, I think one question that I had, um, still on Lake Tropa would be, um, linkages. So we've talked on the show a little bit about various forms of propagation linking with each other. So tropo enhanced e-skip, if you will. I've speculated about e-skip and TEP in the past. And then um, relevant to this podcast, I think I'd be interested in your observations on linkages of Lake Tropo and e-skip and then Lake Tropo, perhaps with larger inland tropo ducting. So um, have you had any experience, say, where you show up at the lake, expect to hear your usual band and you're out four or five, 600 miles? Um, and how, how does the lake, uh, affect those kind of tropo to tropo linkages? And then also the, the e-skip side, if you will. I would, I would definitely say, um, to, to answer that question, that, that question in a more simple manner, a lot of it's trial and error. Uh, that I have found um, as far as linkages. Uh, for example, every time I go up to Sleeping Bear Dunes, that's uh, like northwestern lower peninsula of Michigan, great national lakeshore, absolutely massive sand dunes. So you're, you're hundreds of feet, um, I'd say four to 500 feet above Lake Michigan. So you're really getting in on anything that's higher level Every time I go there, I get stations from the Dakotas. That's, you know, not exactly close. That's borderline e-skip territory. Um, so um, I've I've gotten uh, the Dakotas. I've gotten Duluth, which is not normal here. Thunder Bay, even in in different spots. And the, these are not 
you know, what I would say forecasted. If you look at, um, you look at the Tropo forecast, you won't see um, anything connecting that location to anywhere else. It is largely dead. And so I've been caught off guard many times uh, thinking like, where is this coming from? And then I get home maybe the next day from my, my little radio trip and I look at it in 300 miles inland on the opposite side of Lake Michigan, there, there it is. It, it's like, a, you know, a forecast for high level of tropo. And that, you know, you've got 300 miles of what is forecasted is largely, you know, dead conditions. So in that, in that regard, you know, I'm feeding off of that opening that's a good 300 miles away from me and those stations are getting caught up in it and somehow hopping you know all the way across lake michigan and i mean e easy 500 mile catches mm. and i you know not the weak stuff i mean like rds you know strong enough to decode hd and and that is it's usually something you need to be higher up. You can't just be like down, like at beach level. Um, and uh, one thing as far as um, tropo, um, like lar like larger scale tropo, um, you get a lot of that um, in Wisconsin and westward. That um, Lake Michigan, you know, it's it's a whole different um, whole different weather patterns there where the um, a lot of the tropo openings will stop at the lake you just won't hear them here it's um the same reason that we don't get many tornadoes here lake michigan changes the the weather as it you know as these systems run into lake michigan they just kind of drop off they weaken it yeah yes um and so if you have a giant opening, um, July 8th, 2018, um, I'm sure if some people in the Midwest looked at their logs, they would remember um, opening that connected Michigan to Nebraska. Everything was in, everything. The whole dial was four, 500, 600 mile catches um, with RDS, with just everything. Um, and one thing that Lake Michigan does is, you know, those stations get caught up in the lake duct and it, it sends what we usually would not receive. It sends it to the beaches of Michigan, but uh, the catch is they stop there and you don't get them further inland. They, it extends them across the lake and they stop. So 20 miles inland, I, I miss out on that entire opening where if I drive to the beach and it's hit or miss, you never know. Um, on that day, I, I took the dive. I was hearing a, a few very distant 600 plus mile stations weak at home. I went to the beach and that was the best decision of my DXing life. It's the biggest opening I've ever experienced. Um, and you you didn't start to get it until you got into that, you know, Lake Tropo sort of area, you know, where you'd normally get, you know, Chicago, Milwaukee, Green Bay, really strong. And, um, you know, just 
my time DXing on Lake Michigan, I've heard Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, straight up to the Mississippi and Arkansas line. Um, I've heard Northern Ontario, like Thunder Bay, uh, on a portable, nonetheless. Um, no antenna, just just a portable, 600-mile catches <laughs> because of Lake Michigan. Um, so tropo-wise... It definitely, you can definitely link tropo ducks um, and it does extend that tropo up to the beach and rarely ever further. It will get caught up in the lake instead of jumping over the lake, you know, it'll just get caught up in it. So it's a double-edged sword kind of. Um, E-skip, on the other hand, um, that it, it's, a view that I have never heard uh, from anybody else, perhaps because nobody else, you know, looks into it. I, I have since quit doing e-skip. Um, it has crashed my party at my most distant tropo sites. <laughs> I have driven. Wow. Five, what, a, what a perspective. Five, well. Yes. Five, six, seven hours uh, with a high level of planning. You know, I plan out a site. You know, where do I have to stand? What's my blocking uh, hills? What elevation I need to be at? Everything's great. And then the e-skip rolls in and it washes out my entire session. Uh, persistently every year, uh, even into August, when you think that it won't, it will. Um, but I, I do have um, a lot of experiences from uh, 2006 and 2008, where I was very, very involved in um, FM and TV e-skip. And um, a, a lot of this applies, you know, it goes along with what I said before about that dome of high pressure over the lake. Um, you know, you, you've got the ceiling of the, the lake inversion dome that, you know, the high pressure dome over the water. And that, you know, it's, it's not a solid layer of air, but it may as well be where stations get caught within it now they get caught within the um, within the duct over the water however e-skip as we know comes in at a high angle so it's coming in above the duct and um, what it seems to be doing is refracting off the ceiling of the duct and it goes back into space so if you are if you're at the beach and you're within that marine uh, like tropo layer, you know, the inversion layer, you're shielded from the e-skip that's coming from above. It bounces off of that duct and you're not hearing any of it. Um, so that that's one, one way to look at it. I would say it would be like um, land limited e-skip. Where... That's interesting. So you've had scenarios where you've been say, 10 miles inland, you're hearing uh, e-skip, e you show up at the shore and uh, and everything kind of drops out with the thought that e-skip is, is uh, refracting off the top of the, reflecting off the top of the duct. That's fascinating. I was expecting yes. to hear, oh, you know, kind of lake enhanced e-skip. Well, that, that um, is the I, other I didn't side. think of the angle of uh, reflect, reflection off the duct, yeah. Uh, that That is the other side of things. Um, but yes, as far as like what I would, you know, just term land limited e-skip, it's limited to the land only inland. 
I, I had instances where I would drive 45 minutes to work and I used to work uh, right on the beach. Um, I'd have e-skip for the entire trip, all 45 minutes, you know, one of those, you know, blockbuster e-skip days where like MUF is like 160 or so, you know, you're hearing everything. Yeah. Sure. Um, and, and I get to the beach and right when I get to the beach, it drops out. It just stops. You know, you've got nothing. It's like, well, that that's just, that's weird because it's been in all day. How did it just drop off when I turned this corner? And I turned the car around. Uh, and this is 2006. I, I couldn't find it in, in my log specifically um, wh which day it was. But I turned around and go back, uh, I'd say like a half mile inland. And there it is again, you know, as strong as can be. Wow. Go back to the beach and it's gone. It the you know just dead. All you're hearing is um, you know just the normal Chicago, Milwaukee, and so I was like, well, that is interesting. And then fast forward two years later, uh, still working on the beach. Uh, this time in Grand Haven, Michigan, a very popular tourist area. Uh, it was June twenty seventh. 2008 i looked it up specifically in my log uh this was uh eight nine o'clock at night uh pretty late you know a, a lot of openings here start out in florida they kind of rotate around you know south texas colorado and wyoming montana west yep and usually they drop out you know at least at home but at this point i was hearing northern manitoba which is still within the normal like East Gap range, very, very remote, almost up to Nunavut and like stations I had never heard. And I heard a 97.1, 97.1, this girl, younger girl with a total monotone voice, no expression. And I hear her doing dishes in the background. I can hear her shuffling papers. She reads a list of songs that she had played like the last 20 minutes very uh kind of a first nations you know native sort of accent uh, very um so, something I've, I've just never really heard it wasn't quite a n normal canadian accent um and i listened to this station and there it was paired with other stations in manitoba that i could id cbc mostly uh, i listened to this for a good 45 minutes no ids nothing no clues i i just i had to give up it was time to go home. I'd worked all day. I drove and I marked the point where it disappeared in my log. 2,000 feet inland. All of the stations vanished abruptly. I, I got to the park and I'm driving into downtown and boom, they're gone. Every station. It's like, same thing. I remembered two years before at the beach. I turned the car around. I got right back to that point. And all of them were crystal clear again, you know, like just like you switch, you switched them right back on, went a little bit further down the shore to the, another beach, I'd say a mile down and they're pretty weak. That beach has, um, much, not as much a blocking elevation, uh, and the same goes for Lake Tropo. You know, you're, you're not getting the full signal because you don't have, uh, sand dune or a hill that's really in the right spot and then when i got closer 
to blocking elevation uh, with a, a hill blocking the way inland, it got stronger and it was more intense, hmm. which made it very, very crystal clear that it was coming through the lake ducks. And then as soon as I get inland, gone. And so that I would say is shore limited where um, perhaps uh, this was coming down, you know, in Wisconsin somewhere and those stations refracted it off land, got caught up in the lake ducks and worked their way to the Michigan shore. And so I think it can go either way. Um, I, I would say that's as conclusive as my evidence will get on that topic. Um, it's, it's hard to, to argue against that when, you know, if, if you're in the car with me and you hear how it just, you know, how it just simply drops out, just turns to static and you turn around and there it is again. Um, that, that is just, it's just phenomenal to hear that kind of thing and, and wonder like what, what path are my, my signals taking? You just listened to part one of our conversation with Chris Cadlick on his Great Lakes DX experiences. We're going to give you part two, his time DXing from South Korea, uh, in a second part of this conversation that we had with Chris, Bryce, and I. We'll be releasing that uh, sometime in February. Help to uh, hold you over during the uh, winter season. We really uh, enjoyed talking with Chris. Again, check out his uh, his website. He mentions it a few times in our conversation. Chris Cadlick, that's K-A-D-L-E-C, chriscadlick.com for all kinds of details on uh, his DX and exploits from Michigan, from Korea, the clips he's uh, amassed, all the different uh, tips he has, chriscadlick.com. Until uh, part two of this series, this is Nick Langan, 73's Good DX.